This episode of The Protocol is sponsored by the Algorand Foundation. Dive deep into the blockchain realm with The Protocol podcast with Coindesk founding editor of The Protocol newsletter, Brad Count, and tech journalists, Sam Kessler and Margot Nykirk. They unravel the intricate technologies powering cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, one block at a time. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello and welcome to the Protocol Podcast. I'm Brad Cowan here with my co-host Margot Nykirk. Our co-host Sam Kessler for the Protocol Podcast is uh, still down covering the Sam Bakeman free trial. I was just reading his story from last night. It sounds like they are wrapping up the trial, which is consuming all of the oxygen in crypto media, but it is an amazing story. And we're super psyched that Sam is down covering that. On the other hand, he'll be back here uh, probably, I was just talking, Margo, probably like a week or so. Yeah, probably next week, hopefully. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Huge story. Um, Just a quick plug for the protocol newsletter. Margo and I and Sam work pretty hard on this every week, and it's really good. We encourage you to subscribe. Go to Coindesk.com. A lot of the stories that we're discussing today were in the issue of the protocol newsletter that just came out. You can read more about it there if you subscribe, and it's also on Coindesk.com, a, a web version of the newsletter. But let's get right into it. Okay, our first story today. This was a story yeah. that that I covered. Starknet. I mean, Margaret, you're the expert on Starknet, but you were out on Monday. So I took this one. Starknet, they announced that they are going to award 50 million of their STRK tokens. This is the Starknet Foundation to what they're calling the early community member program. I mean, this is pretty common kind of thing, although Often it's done when there's already a public token. In this case, they're not even, these tokens are locked from trading until next April. I mean, Margaret, do you have any thoughts on why do these teams award these tokens? You know, to who are they awarding them to? I guess my take on this is that this kind of move is done to sort of incentivize those early community members and those developers to sort of adhere to an ecosystem or thank them for their contribution to an ecosystem while also sort of like incentivizing them to sort of stay there. But I want to sort of also know from your conversations with folks over at the foundation, why the certain amount? I saw that it was like 5 million tokens that are being awarded to those early members, but also just generally speaking, I'm we we talk a lot about this like in our own conversations, like how tokens are allocated to certain entities. In this case, fifty point one percent of the token, like the total supply of the token, is being handed to the foundation. So I'm sort of like curious what your take is on the token allocate, like the different token allocations when it comes to this. This was in 2022. They basically minted these tokens out of thin air. That's what these projects do. They minted 10 billion of the tokens. Right. And they gave about half of them to the foundation. And then it's. Is that normal? Is that normal compared to, like, in your opinion, is that normal to give half the token supply to a foundation? That's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. 
as you have written about extensively, Margot, the name of the game here is, it seems like, based on what I've observed, is there's one centralized developer, you know, there's usually a primary developer who develops these networks. And then they kind of proceed on their decentralization roadmap, right? And so turning the project over to the foundation, they say, is part of their decentralized roadmap, where they don't want it to be just like, you know, people who own a company controlling everything. They want to turn it over to the community. Of course, you know, a lot of this is trying to avoid getting hit by securities laws. So many projects that are coming out, they like, you know, we've talked to DYDX. They don't even allow their tokens to trade in the United States. But right. uh, I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, yeah. So I did a quick search. I was more interested in this because of the, the, this story sort of also reminded me of the stories back in April about the Arbitrum Foundation when there was like a certain amount of tokens allocated to the foundation also versus like the investors. And that also drew a lot of drama in the space. (laughs) And so so I looked it up in terms of, so the StarkNet Foundation gets the majority of that supply token, but 17% goes to early investors. And I remember from the Arbitrum announcement, 44% goes to off-chain labs, like from the ARB token goes to off-chain labs as well as early investors. So I'm always just sort of curious to see like who's getting these tokens. Margo, we're going to talk later in the show about the Celestia airdrop, but You know, it's one of the really interesting phenomena of crypto is that you have these ridiculously smart, talented programmers, you know, these coders who have PhDs in computer science, and they're building this stuff. And the only thing that people care about, you know, is the tokens and these airdrops. And so with StarkNet, here they are. They're trying to incentivize the community. And the way that these projects are doing this is to build these communities is basically giving away like these free tokens. And that's all anybody cares about. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, it's it's still kind of crazy to see how crypto Twitter goes into a frenzy anytime there's an opportunity to get like a free token or get their nails into a, an airdrop. I wonder if we'll be talking about airdrops down the line, like in the next few years, like who knows what's going to happen. This is, it's all crazy in my opinion, but. I, I mean, StarkNet, you know, here they're like advanced zero knowledge cryptography. It's a layer two network on Ethereum. And, you know, if you go on crypto Twitter, the only thing people care about is just who they want, those free Stark tokens, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. But they're not even trading. So they, you know, they haven't even said if they're ever going to have an airdrop. It's probably presumed that they would, you know, eventually, to your point, Margo, these teams and the early investors want to cash out eventually. Well, let us move to our next segment here. We're going to talk about this is a story that you wrote late last week, Margo. Yeah. uh, Arbitrum. Tell us about it. Yeah. So the Arbitrum Foundation shared that their orbit networks, which are their layer three and layer two networks, are now more mainnet ready. So they are live, which basically means that these layer three or layer two networks, like any the customizable layer two or layer three networks can be created by the orbit program are now can settle on the Arbitrum blockchain. They had come out with this program back in March or maybe April or so it was early spring and it was still on testnet. So now it's sort of 
ready to be used. And this is sort of a bigger trend story that we've been following and talking closely about on the podcast, which is that these different layer two networks are coming out with their own customizable blockchains for different teams and different projects to use for different purposes. You know, we've talked a whole a bunch about polygons, CDK, and the OP stack a lot on here. And Matter Labs has their own version of that coming out to Starkware as well. So this sort of adds to that plethora of customizable blockchains for different uh, dApps. Margo, as you say, we've talked a lot about the, these layer twos, so many layer twos. Yeah. So many layer twos. And then there's these layer two stacks, which is basically these teams making it easy for anybody to spin up a layer two. Here we're talking about a layer three. I mean, do you have a sense of just like where all this is going? How many networks are we going to have or how many are we going to need? And think what the purpose of these different networks is that these different projects are going to or can sort of use this built out technology that serves them for their own different reasons, but it feels collectively like they're part of one blockchain network. You know, if you're building on Orbit, then you're sort of like, it feels like you're using Arbitrum technology. Or if you're building on CDK, you're sort of part of the wider Polygon network. There'll be these different stacks and these different chains available, but you're sort of part of a wider ecosystem. And I think that's what these projects are pivoting towards that like, there are these going to be these different chains, but collectively you feel like you're on one network, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting as we've talked, we've written about, you know, there's this herd mentality in some ways where they all kind of do the same thing. You know, one team comes out with its layer two stack or blockchain in a box and then they all do it, you know, and so here's Arbitrum's coming live with theirs finally, uh, the Orbit. When you read about where things are going and just kind of putting your finger in the wind of what's the buzz right now, people are talking about interoperability, right? And so I, I don't know, like they're at pains to create these little mini orbits, you know, these mini ecosystems, but it seems like a different group of technologists is talking about connecting all blockchains through all this interoperability. I don't know. Do you have any? Yeah, I think exactly. It's exactly what you said. It depends on what which technologists you talk to and what they believe in. I think still there's a big group of people who believe that Ethereum's the way to go. L2s are the way to go about Ethereum. And so they're going to create these opportunities for different projects to make use of that and to be built on what they think is like in terms of security. Again, not my words, but what they think is the best in terms of security and what they think is the best in terms of scalability. If one L2 is offering something, like why can't another L2 offer the same thing? It's it's all competition, right? We were, we, as you were just alluding to, that I think the different projects offer different things in terms of security and in terms of like how projects can be built on it. And I think it's just sort of evaluate as a project, like what where you fit in better into. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean. If you're choosing one of these teams, and, and as we've discussed with the Cello story, you know, a couple of weeks back, there's hot competition among these teams that are offering these, you know, blockchain in, in boxes to get people to use their blockchain in a box, you know, but if, if you choose one, I guess that is the question. Are you committing to that team? 
you right. know, like, I mean, we've talked about bass, right? And Jesse yeah, Pollock. Yeah, I was just going to bring yeah. that up. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to bring that up because Jesse Pollock told us that, like, he went around and interviewed all the different teams and we grilled him on, like, why are you choosing OP Stack? Like, when every when every technologist on the L2 has said ZK is the way forward, why are right. you choosing a ZK one? He's like, yeah, we were aware of that uh, decision, but also, like, OP Stack offers that modular proof system. So those are different things that different projects are are taking into consideration. Okay, well, modular. You said the magic word, Margo. Great transition, (laughs) I guess. I didn't even mean that. That's our segue. Because coming up in our Protocol Village segment, we're going to talk about Celestia and their airdrop this week. And Celestia is all about modularity. That's the new word, Margo, modularity. Modular. Um, (laughs) So, all right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Ready to create the next Web3 unicorn? Go from concept to fully functioning dApp with AlgoKit. The all-in-one development package helps you get building on Algorand in less than 10 minutes. Let Algorand's advanced blockchain technology, lightning-fast transaction speeds, and instant finality be the rails for your next world-class project. Head over to developer.algorand.org slash AlgoKit to download today. Okay, we are back, and now we're going to talk about Celestia. You know, this was clearly the big story of the week in kind of the blockchain tech world and also sort of in the crypto degen world. We haven't had a big airdrop, which is basically, Margot, I mean, maybe you can give a better definition, but it's kind of like a token giveaway, right? It's like you're you're rewarding people who have... You know, in some cases, you're rewarding builders who have built applications on your blockchain before it went live, right? And so this is kind of like, you know, the reason they did it, they built in the first place is because they knew this was coming, you know? And then sometimes if there's like test users, you might get, you know, they might get some airdrop. But a lot of times I was just reading the distribution for the Celestia airdrop and it was like... If you just even used the top 10 layer two protocols, you got some of these tokens. What, what do you think about that? Interesting. I, I don't know if I, if I have much of an opinion on that, but that's, <laughs> uh, that's, not, that's not one of the first. Uh, that's like, I, I don't think I've heard that before as in terms of qualifications, in terms of airdrop. So I'd be curious why that. Well, it, I, I mean, it's marketing, awareness, and then... You know, I don't know how that translates exactly into the usage, but that's how they they seed, you know, the development and and they they seed the usage. They're going to bring people into the ecosystem. They get, you know, the token trading. It becomes liquid. Uh, It got listed on all these exchanges. But, you know, I mean, once again, just kind of circling back to the initial segment, Celestia is like a totally, from a blockchain project perspective, it is a super interesting project. It is super complicated too. But, you know, I wrote about with Oliver Knight, one of our colleagues, this whole thing started as a PhD paper by uh, Mustafa Al-Bassam, who went on to found and, and is now the CEO of Celestia. 
he wrote a research paper when he was a PhD student in computer science at uh, University College London, and the paper was titled Lazy Ledger. And it is pretty heavy going. <laughs> I tried to read this paper, and I could almost kind of sort of make through the introduction and you know, the conclusion maybe, but I mean, in the middle, you know, it goes into pretty deep Greek and cryptography and, you know, pretty heavy blockchain design. It's pretty complicated stuff, but the big idea is taking stuff off of Ethereum, right? Like Ethereum is the base layer and it's doing all of these things. I mean, why don't you talk about that? You know, you've been following this way better than I have, Margo, in terms of right. like the Ethereum well, so, so, roadmap. Yeah. Celestia, in like high level, Celestia, what it does is it solves a data availability problem, which basically means that like you're able to prove records of certain transactional details exist if needed without actually having to download that data. And the reason why the data availability problem is like sort of percolating into, or not even percolating, it's now really a big story that we're going to be probably talking about more over the next couple months is because there's just so much data on Ethereum that there's not enough space for it. So there's they're looking for other ways to be able to put that data elsewhere. And so these data availability layers have like come to exist, like Celestia. There are some competitors like Avail. We've talked to Anurag about Avail and EigenDA, which is the data availability. EigenDA, which is sort of affiliated with EigenLayer. You wrote the story about Celestia. I can talk about it from the perspective of Avail, which is this uh, competitor of Celestia. When we spoke to them, he sort of compared it to like uploading an image on Google. And then if you want to go and make sure that image is still there, you can get a certain portion of that image that proves it's there without having to re-download that image, if that is a helpful explanation. I think it's a really interesting conversation because this sort of ties into other topics around L2s and gang sharding or proto-gang sharding, which, you know, we'll be talking probably more about in the next few months as Ethereum gears up towards a new upgrade around that. But I'll, I'll keep it at that. You wrote a big piece about data availability earlier this year. And, you know, it seems like it would be easy, but it's really not easy at all. It's super complicated. And I mean, I wrote when I was here at the permissionless conference um, in Austin, uh, in September, and uh, Dankrod Feist of the Ethereum Foundation, he made the comment on stage that he found that term data availability too confusing. He thought it sh they should start using the term data publishing, which is ironic because like there's this term dank sharding. Right, which is like, <laughs> which as if like you walk around this earth <laughs> knowing what dank sharding is. If you're, I mean, I guess if you're in blockchain, then like, you do know what it is. But if you're not, like, you know, like, it's just some made up word. Yeah, named after him. And he's yeah. saying this other thing is complicated. But at any rate, when I was reading that lazy ledger paper, it used the term, the way that users query the network for data. So that really made something click uh, for me. Think about it like this, Margo. You're working at a, a burger chain, right? People are ordering cheeseburgers and you're serving the cheeseburgers and the fries and whatever. And then somebody comes up to you and says, 
how many cheeseburgers have you served today? And how many French fries have you served today? And you're like, you know, I don't have time for that. You know, that is kind of what Ethereum's benefiting from here is like, if people are querying them for data while they're trying to do the work of confirming all these transactions, they don't have this like, you know, thing buzzing in their ear asking them for the data. And so it just frees them up. It frees up their time. I don't know. What do you think about that analogy? Yeah, no, it's definitely developers and like industry leaders have definitely see the benefits of these data availability layers, especially like we said, there's so much just congesting the network that it makes that access to that data that much harder. Right. But I will say, I remember from our conversations when I wrote that data availability piece, when I talked to uh, Carl from OP Labs, he shared that the data availability, the layers are a great alternative where they definitely serve a good purpose, but nothing beats the data of an L1 because of the security. So it's interesting to sort of see how that goes. And I think these data availability layers have come out because dank sharding, like the full implementation of dank sharding is still like years away. You know, proto dank sharding is supposedly going to go live early, you know, 2024 or, or late this year, though I think early 2024, that's a conversation for a different time. But then the full implementation of dank sharding is still going to be a long time away. And so the need for Celestia, the need for Avail, the need for EigenDA is going to be present until, you know, that load gets lighter. Yeah. It's all super interesting. I mean, the, and the modularity, you know, is one thing that they're really emphasizing here is that you can sort of pick and choose, you know, it's, it's moving to more, you know, some projects might want that a la carte model, but, or, or, you know, to sort of plug in and various, to various things in various ways. And I'm just getting a note here from our producer, Michelle Musso. She wants to know why it's a 345 million dollar project overnight, which is what we put in the headline, you know, and I've got a, I got a message from a, a former colleague who was making the point, uh, this didn't happen overnight, right? Like these, you know, this team's been working on it forever, you know, but it kind of, well, how long happen. is forever? How long <laughs> well, is forever? Everything's relative, well, right? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Margo. I mean, which is another point, which is like, you know, here's this brilliant idea of data availability and modularity, and it's all based on this PhD paper, but this thing is brand spanking new. We got to see if it works, right? We'll see. Time will tell. I mean, things always go wrong, you know. In other words, these projects, they create these tokens. And just like the StarkNet story, they don't have value that is visible or liquid. They're locked up for trading. Actually, you know, these these Celestia, the TIA tokens, they were trading. There's a, a protocol called Helix. And None of this stuff's illegal in the United States, but you know, there's like a pre, or at least that's, they're not allowed, you know, they don't allow you to trade in the United States. It's presumed it's a violation of the securities laws, but it's like a pre-launch token futures. So it's like with leverage, you know, you can basically bet on what the price is going to be when these tokens go live. So, you know, there's so much speculation, but then, you know, it's not live. And then all of a sudden, day one, day zero, whatever you want to call it, the tokens get listed on all these exchanges and suddenly they have a price and suddenly there's liquidity, you know, and some of these tokens may still be locked up. You know, I think that was, we put that in our story that a lot of the investors are locked in for 
for a you few know, Oliver, yeah, 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 Oliver wrote here, seed investors locked till October 2024. That's a year. Court, yeah, yeah, yeah. Initial court contributors receiving their tokens in October 2026. So, But there is a circulating supply that was listed by CoinMarketCap. CoinMarketCap says they put the circulating supply. That's the ones that are actually, I guess, like floating around in the markets. 141 million tokens at 244 each. And so a market capitalization of $344 million is what it says there. But anyway, that's how it happens overnight. It's like one day it, was, it wasn't it was liquid and then all of a sudden it's liquid. You know, what do you think about that, Margo? Poof. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Poof. It appears. That's how it, that's sort of how that happens. Poof sounds like I it's disappearing. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have more thoughts about this. You know, once again, it goes back to the earlier discussion. It's like, that is what's so fascinating to me about blockchain is it's tech and it's money. Nobody ever really knows where it's all going. Anyway. We'll just have to, you know, we'll have to see what comes out of Celestia, what comes out of the TIA tokens, whether these like other data availability solutions will have their own tokens, how they will compare to to Tia. Um, yeah. This is, yeah. you know, we'll be talking about this way more, I think. Yeah, absolutely. We're just getting started. Yeah. Okay, well, that is it for this week. Thank you for listening to the Protocol Podcast. If you have any questions or any stories, story tips, or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Protocol. And you can listen to us weekly on Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. And also please subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol on Coindesk.com. Oh, and thank you to our incredible producer, Michelle Musso, sticking questions there in the queue. See you next week. Thank you.